You're listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. Learn about local issues, meet candidates, and find out what we're doing to bring more options to Georgia voters. Now here's your host. Welcome all to the Georgia Liberty Cast. I'm the vice chair of the Libertarian Party of Georgia, play acting tonight as the host because we're both pretty exhausted by all coronavirus all the time news. So I have with me tonight the chair of the Libertarian Party, who's even less interested in the content than I am. Hey, y'all. And R- for the Ryan record, Graham. For the record, I'm Ryan Graham, and for the and uh, Laura Williams is your host. <laughs> so Martin was kind enough to fill in for us last <laughs> week. There's a lot of ballot access news going on, and you should absolutely, if you missed that episode last week, check in with that. Also, as always, our ballot access fundraiser to cover the costs of running copies and all the paperwork that the state requires to keep fighting our lawsuit, um, lpgeorgia.com. Our thermometer is right at the top. Click on donate. Help us out with that ballot access lawsuit. Thank you, Martin, for filling in. (laughs) We have been hearing lots of opinions about what libertarians should and shouldn't think about everything that is going on right now, not only because people are stuck at home with little else to do than argue on social media, but because people are scared. Yeah. And the natural primate response to fear is to look for a powerful leader that can keep us safe. Yeah, I think the the catchphrase has been, there's no such thing as a libertarian during a pandemic. Yeah, I don't know to what degree that's a catchphrase, but I have seen it circulated. <clears throat> yeah. And cer- it has frustrated me. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong in acknowledging that instinct to look for the most powerful person in the tribe to face something that scares you, even if we know that is the reaction of the reptilian lizard hindbrain and not the kind of humanist prefrontal logical consideration we owe to each other and everyone else. But I also, and maybe this goes back to something I read from Steve Horowitz, a couple weeks ago, like there's nothing wrong with saying I'm totally confident in my libertarian views. And this is the hardest thing I've faced. Right. This is, this is the thing that makes me doubt. I think that's really healthy. It it absolutely is. But you have to get back to it and remember how inept the government is at handling really any situation. And so why would they be inherently better in, in, in the worst case scenario? (laughs) Right. None of us know what to do. <laughs> Why would you look to the people who habitually do not know what to do, Correct. even in the best of times, right. make terrible decisions yeah. and get us into wars and spend money they don't have and, you know, generally make terrible decisions that negatively impact you and your family? Absolutely. Yeah. I think all of that is healthy, but it may not come <clears throat> as easily when you're scared to say, I don't know what the right thing is. Well, I And think- we could all bear with a little more of saying, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think people are really afraid to say, I don't know. And I, I find that I don't know is is really powerful, you know, when you can go come to the table because it really opens up your mind to hearing more solutions outside the box, inside the box, whatever. Sure. Like, I don't know is very powerful and it doesn't pigeonhole you in anywhere. So. And I find I'm, I'm more tolerant with absolutely everyone because I've been tolerant with myself. <laughs> like... <laughs> I can't explain to you 
how much of an idiot I was three to five years ago. Right. And every three to five years of my life, I realized what an idiot I was three to five years ago. So I have a lot of tolerance for people who are genuinely questioning and like trying to figure out how they feel about things because I've been there and, and I have at least a reasonable suspicion that they might be right and I might be wrong. Yeah. And I might be embarrassed by what I say today That's the, once I have more information. Yeah, uh, three years ago on Facebook sometimes shows me like rants I went on or something or like long form writing <laughs> that I put into Facebook. And I look at it and I'm just like copy editing it, you know, like, yeah, oh, like God, this is terrible. Oh, who was this guy? Yeah, this is weird. <laughs> How did he not have all of the information? But having more information that then causes you to change how you feel about things is also really powerful. Yeah. So in regards to the, the, this, you know, pandemic that we're in, I, I feel like, um, I, I have had a good time. Um, the exercise, the libertarian exercise that I've gone into is looking for the one, the places where, um, government is getting in the way. So like, you know, the major thing is testing. So the FDA is, is blocking all kinds of testing that, that could happen, mm-hmm. uh, in favor of, you know, I don't know what they're waiting on. It, it's probably malice. I, that's what I would assume here is that it's, uh, cronyism at its finest. The FDA is waiting for their buddies to get their ducks in a row so that they can make all the money off of it. Um, instead of letting that the products that already exist. a reasonable exist. suspicion based on the history of their behavior. We know there's tests that exist that, you know, that 15 minute results, right? We know that they are, are possible. Like South Korea, since the very beginning of this, has been mm-hmm. giving those mm-hmm. to, I think, there are like 6,000 tests for every million citizens they have, and we're at about 1,000 tests per million. So we're yeah. like way behind the curve. And we're going to get terrible results. At, you know, when you are rationing to the people who are most symptomatic before you test them, test them you're going to get a distorted view of the severity of the, de- the disease. If you're waiting for people who are hospitalized before you're testing them, you're going to get... High an- positive rate. A high positive rate and an absurdly high mortality rate. Right, yeah. Right, which doesn't actually have to do that much with the pe- the number of total people who are infected right. based on the people who die, but the people who are tested. Basically. I may have had yeah. it a few weeks ago. I wouldn't know because yeah. I didn't go get tested. Many, many people might go. have. Yeah, exactly. And there's some reasonable need for quality control. How, whether you think that's a function of government or not, we do need some quality control in the testing. China, we know, produced and sold a few hundred thousand tests um, to other countries that turned out to be worse than useless. They produced false positives and false negatives and were at least arguably functionally worse than never having had tests at all. Yikes. Because they gave people... yeah undue confidence and undue <clears throat> pessimism at the same time. So like there, there are places where we're not sure. I don't know that the CDC or the FDA are the best people to decide whether tests are valid or not. Yeah. And especially not to decide that in the next week or two weeks when it's really needed. Right. But I acknowledge that quality control problems exist and the market is not perfect. They are clearly the bottleneck. In regards to testing and testing is considered widely one of the best things that we can be doing to get out of the crisis faster. I was listening to a doctor on one of the Georgia podcast, Georgia news podcasts. Um, Go ahead. Shout him out. Uh, is uh, political rewind. So mm-hmm. Dr. Del Rio does, does, um, is an, uh, was an epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. Is that the right one at yep. Emory? 
and he studies it as well as working in the hospitals. Yeah, he was saying that if the testing were better, then they would actually save a lot on the masks and other equipment that they're using sure. in the hospitals because right now they take the test and then they send it in. It takes like seven days for them to get it back, five to seven days. Meanwhile, they're using masks every time they go into that room for right. that patient and they're using a lot more than they need to. Right. Or if they had the 15, 30-minute test or if they had testing facilities set up at Emory uh, properly, if they were allowed to even... Mm -hmm then they could get that same day and they could be using a lot less masks. Yes. I spoke to an acquaintance who is an ER nurse and is desperately needed. And she got cleared to go back to work. And what she knows is that she hadn't been exposed eight days ago. What do you mean? Like, so they thought that she might have been exposed. And so they gave her a test and sent her home. And now... The test came back negative, so she's ready to go back to work. She has small kids at home, and she interacts with people. And all you really know is that you wouldn't have tested positive eight days ago, right. which doesn't necessarily mean you should be going back to work, but it's the best they can do because yeah. the testing takes so long and is still relatively randomized right. throughout the population. It's good that we're testing Frontline healthcare workers, you want them to have every test that is necessary, but also you would expect that testing daily would make sense if tests were available. Right, yeah, for especially for healthcare professionals. Right, yeah. you're going to go stick your hands in someone's face, and you don't have a lot of way around that. That's yeah. what your job is, yep. is to be around people who are habitually sick. Habitually? That's not what I meant. Chronically, chronically ill, right? <laughs> Who might just as easily be ill with something unrelated. Right. And also still require your immediate care. Right. But there's no way to know whether that is exposure to a contagion or that is part of your everyday job. Right. So it's really infuriated me through talking about the healthcare crisis this week to read and hear people talking about coronaviruses and lockdowns and shortages as though they were failures of the market. <laughs> You're right. It's hard to imagine an industry less free to respond to rapid changes in global conditions than American healthcare. And the reason that it's so bound up and inflexible has everything to do with government control and virtually nothing to do with how profit-seeking corporations and individuals would respond if they were left to their own devices. Absolutely. So now we see people making choices about what's necessary, uh, whole production lines that, honestly, I would not have thought were that compatible with producing respirators, are being switched yeah, over like to producing respirators. Factories. Yeah. We found out that you can build a respirator out of parts you can buy at the Home Depot. Right. Right. And it's teams of mostly medical students who have the time to tinker and figure this out. They are at public universities, but that's because that's where scholarship... They're at public universities, but that's because that's a, the place where the scholarships are available and the money is. And so there's a crowding out that happens from private industry. There will always be more government money than there is from anyone else. So when you find teams at public universities, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a government effort so much as those people were attracted by what government offers right. and are now all in the same place doing really valuable work. 
Well, and it's hard to compete with public sometimes. So because they exist, they might be taking the place of, of a few other ones that may exist if the market was allowed to thrive. Right. Yeah. Yep. And it's important to think about the things that we have and are relying on and where they came from. Like disposable latex gloves are, it turns out, less than half a century old. And they came to us from Australia via international trade and honestly a lack of respect for patent law that was part of the process of getting them where they were needed. Uh, The number of respirators and protective masks available in the U.S. is a source of major public concern all of a sudden, but that strangely has not caused most people to look at the sources of the shortages, right? The federal restrictions and regulations aimed at limiting the number of companies who were authorized, not capable but authorized under congressional and executive agency mandates to produce goods that we all knew were essential to some degree and for some people and have suddenly become much more essential. Right. Like, why aren't we scaling up? There's obviously demand. It would, it would seem to follow that a free market would, would follow that demand because they're profit driven. And, and there's profit to be made there, so why wouldn't they do it? Yeah, people are willing to pay more right. than they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is reasonable. Sure. And and that is what gives a signal to everyone else who has the capability to make them to switch. Mm-hmm. Right? And to start providing more of needed goods in areas where they're not needed. So I, I encourage you to go check out Words and Numbers which is produced by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. They've been digging into price gouging, quote unquote, pretty hard. And what is the difference in value between a $2 bottle of hand sanitizer that you can't get and a $10 bottle of hand sanitizer that's still on the shelf? Have you seen seen this now? The um, breweries, not breweries, the distilleries are trying to switch their manufacturing and they're not allowed to? Well... Yeah, that was the case a week ago. I think yeah. they have mostly been getting consent. But yeah, places that were happy to produce alcohol that's 40% ethanol by volume because that's what people wanted to mix with their soda. <laughs> or Yeah. And now suddenly there's a demand for anybody who can pr- produce something you can rinse your hands with that's 60% ethanol by volume. And I noticed that a couple of places that... Um, are usually happy to tout how strong their drinks are, have come out. Tito's Vodka said, please don't bother washing your hands with our vodka. It does not meet the CDC regulations for the percentage of ethanol. Yikes. (laughs) But still, these are uh, factories, right? Distilleries who are otherwise set up to produce exactly what people want and can't get enough of, but don't have the federal... Permission. Well, their license is saying that they're producing this other thing that right. is structured in some other way. And so they don't discern the difference between this type of alcohol and that type of alcohol. The law doesn't yes. discern the difference. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, the manufacturers are happy to switch to what is suddenly valuable to right. people beyond yep. um, what can intoxicate you on a Friday evening and is more relevant to how you keep your family safe. Right. Right. They weren't in that business, but they're happy to be in that business if that's mm-hmm. where the profit is. We should also be mindful of the number of otherwise applicable laws that have been suspended 
pretty regularly in the midst of a very public epidemic for every shortfall that happens while we're paying attention. Um, There are truckers who are suddenly allowed to drive all night to get goods where they need to go. There are off-brand manufacturers who didn't have the lobby power to make their point, but are making goods that people desperately need. We should be honest about the fact that the laws have all along prohibited the production of things that some people needed at the price they could pay. And those bans have been harming people all along. Yeah, just not at the the in the context of something that we're all so worried about that is affecting us so I mean every single person in the in the world right now is affected by this. So it's it's making that that difference. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little carousel <clears throat> of Bastiat's seen and unseen. <laughs> and yeah. things are are cycling in and out of the spotlight. Right. So people whose needs were not obvious a few months ago are acutely obvious now when it's almost too late to make the adjustments we need. We should have been letting people meet those needs all along, shipping yeah. overnight and uh, manufacturing whatever concentration of alcohol was actually required. Yeah. And now we have an appreciation for what is lost. Whereas we had no problem ignoring those needs when they were less the subject of public attention. Right. So, like, the CDC doesn't make respirators. Nope. They don't make tests. They don't make protective masks. They don't make vaccines. Right. Nor do the FDA. Right. They dictate which of the options produced by public enterprise or by private enterprise, usually for profit, will be available to ordinary people or can be made in the United States or can be brought into the United States. Yeah. The primary role of public health agencies in non-emergency situations is to limit who can make and provide supplies. Right. But all the tests that do work and all of the masks and gloves and respirators that are working are produced by private companies, many of them not American. Right. Right? That rely on the free trade between individuals and interested companies to maintain the incentives to keep producing more of these things, even when it's not clear yet when we'll need them. Was um, the test that they had on <clears throat> on LPTV today, they, mm-hmm. they did a special LPTV that... Um, had a test that uh, produced results, I think, within 10 to 20 minutes. And um, the the kicker on that is it's produced in America and then exported because they can't sell it here. So they sell it overseas. <laughs> I don't know how they got a hold of, hold of it, but... Fascinating. Yeah. So that's the funny thing is it's made in the United States, but all 100% exported because they're not approved by the FDA. Yeah. There are so. a number of companies who produce medications that are otherwise... You know, not specifically pandemic related, but say insulin, right? That people need every day. And we have the same factory that produces two different brands, one of which can be sold for virtually nothing in Canada and the other that has to be labeled differently and marked up by the FDA in order to cross the border. Yeah. And it is exactly the same product produced in the same place, but 
government dictates which you can mm-hmm. have and which you can't. <clears throat> right. The other um, the other thing I, I heard that the FDA was doing was um, they were co-opting, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word, but they were taking um, hospital orders for ventilators and they were not they were seat like seizing them essentially mm. they were diverting them to themselves so that they could centrally plan where those go in yeah. the future so and if you think that isn't being strategically rationed according to who has electoral votes well so we already know crazy. that um trump diverted specifically personally decided that you know somebody in a hospital i think somewhere in new york sent him an email saying, like, we don't have any of these. And he just sent, without asking them what they needed or anything like that, sent them, uh, like, five-month supply of face masks. Oh, boy. Who knows if they need it? Who knows if that, I mean... If so that's, that's a what, good use or right. that will save lives yeah. or it doesn't matter. Because that's what happens, yep. right? I mean, people who are California, Florida, New York. Yeah, people who are well-connected are the ones that are going to get it, not the ones who it would work the best for, which is what central planning is, like, that's supposed to be the perk, right? Is that they can see the whole thing and so they can decide. But that's not what happens. Right, that's never <clears throat> how actual distributed knowledge works. Right, people Turns on into the an ground oligarchy very fast. Inevitably, right. right. There is no way to prevent other people. You know, if you put people in charge of something, they will figure out how to make it meet their needs, right? Not the public needs, because yeah. those are out there and vague. It doesn't even have to be malicious. It's whatever's right in front of you is right. what you respond to. That's sort of all we have, right? And that's the explanation for why we're reacting to no doubt a very vicious and unusual and potentially really deadly flu virus in this way is it is in front of us at this moment. Right. And we're not able to take into account all the other things that our resources could be doing or aren't doing while the economy shut down or um, when the H1N1 flu was the big, um, public crisis, we diverted a whole bunch of materials from other kinds of research labs, right? There are a limited number of epidemiology and infectious disease specialists in the world. If you divert their time to this very immediate and scary and new threat because, you know, it sparkles and catches our attention, um, there are measurable numbers of people who died unnecessarily of malaria during that time. Right, because they Be- weren't focused on that. Because resources always have alternative uses. And they're scarce. Yep. Yeah. And when you point them towards something else, that this is the basics of what economics is, right. right? Who gets access to scarce resources? And when you point it at the sparkly scary thing because it's new and your lizard brain is firing a hundred percent because there's this threat out there that you don't know how to accommodate. Um, it's not actually possible to appreciate how the resources might otherwise have been spent. Right. But I also wanted to talk. Um, I know I, when we recorded two weeks ago, you said it's all, coronavirus news all the time because that's what people are listening to and i get that (laughs) and i was also i know i was also very annoyed by that because i think we're focusing on the wrong things so i wanted to give a few minutes at least of tonight's episode to talk about all the things that are going right 
and the things that people are doing that we hadn't expected. Yeah. The other side about, you know, we can all be libertarians during a pandemic is looking at the people who are voluntarily doing the right thing. Yeah. And when you realize that government isn't all powerful and can't come to save you, people look out for each other in ways that they're not ordinarily inclined to do. So we know that there are many, many community databases being built of like who can go out and who can shop and who can, has to stay home and is hoping that someone will be able to bring them groceries. Yeah. And I've read a lot about, um, people negotiating how to front one another money for groceries. (laughs) Like I can go and get your groceries, but I understand why you wouldn't hand a stranger your hundred dollars. Right. Right. So this person will sub in the hundred dollars to make sure that the groceries are delivered before the money leaves the pocket of the person who really needs the groceries and really needs the hundred dollars if something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, And also people who are excited about how technology can connect us and acknowledging that technology isn't as accessible to the people who are most desperately in need during this, right? You can set up a neighborhood Google doc that tells everyone who needs groceries, but if no one over 70 can work your Google doc, then you're going to miss out on the most need. Right. I've also been pretty impressed by the reaction of institutions that, usually covet their knowledge and ask you to pay for access have been releasing huge chunks of intellectual property to try to support people while they're schooling their kids at home and while they're um, stuck. And well, you weren't going to travel and see the Louvre anyway. So here's, you know, 24 seven roving camera video of, of what's here. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And the high museum has done it and, yeah. I mean, all sorts of places are providing more access in ways that non-libertarians would not expect that private entities would do. Right. Right. When the need is high, people are giving up possible revenue for each other. Well, and the dreaded billionaires are donating millions of dollars to create, you know, to make sure that... Uh, respirators and masks and things like that are being manufactured and so yeah and you know. people willing to fund five vaccines until we figure out which one will be approved and then Bill we'll... gates right he said he was going to set up five factories and he's willing to take a loss on every single one so he's fronting for the gates foundation right. it's not right. immediately clear to me whether he's making decisions for the gates foundation <laughs> that's okay I mean, or he's just the public face of it. I don't. I don't want to make it seem like he's deciding which are the valid vaccines, right? Oh, because yeah. I think he would be the first to be like, "Ah, it's not my choice." I, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not. But they I dropped said, out of college. They said, Here are five possibilities. <laughs> right. You know. Let's. And then he said, "Yeah, that's fine. Let's fund it." Yeah. And if they if none of them work, then it was still money well spent in his view. In his view, is what he said. So. Yeah, and he has some shady past dealings with vaccines and especially working overseas and not getting informed consent from people. And I think it's appropriate that we should be skeptical of non-medical professionals making decisions about the medical profession. I think that's very valid, but it's also something that many critics would not expect 
private individuals to do for one another. Right. Yeah. So what else is going on out there? What are, what are the positive responses that you've seen? I, I learned that you can apparently put two people on one ventilator. I didn't know that. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, anesthesiologists and, and specialists in the respiratory oh, yeah. profession who are like, eh, we never really talked about this, but this machine is much stronger than it needs to be. Yeah. And that's been fine all along because there were plenty to meet demand. And now that we are talking about demand far exceeding the number of respirators available, it turns out these few, you know, 3D printed, and they can be 3D printed for pennies, these adaptations will allow us to put two people on the same ventilator. Yeah, that's awesome. So we just doubled the number of potential ventilators as a, or respirators as opposed to what the official recommendation says they should be. Right. As long as they're allowed to do it. Yeah, we'll see. I think... Maybe they say, screw it, we're doing it. I don't care if you if it's allowed. <laughs> I... I think you would see that before you would see people truly triaging who can be treated or, and who can't. Right. Unless there were a reason to fear people being infected by being close enough to share a ventilator. Well, at that point, you're both infected. So. I guess that's not necessarily true. There will be plenty of people who need respirators Oh. who are yeah. sick with other things. Yeah, that's true. Maybe you put them in one wing and someone else in the other <clears throat> wing. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the impact on small business? I think we should. Okay. Because for whatever the impact of the virus and the, I think it's inevitable at this point, we will see a large number of deaths. Even if it's some predictable multiple of a normal flu season, it'll be affecting people to a greater degree than we're used to. Right. We may all know someone that we lose right i mean i don't think i know anyone with it still not that's advertised it at least yeah you know i know a few people have tested positive which is not the same thing as yeah being in critical danger yeah from it yeah i'm not sure i even know anybody like that unless you know i know somebody like that but (laughs) yeah but you also know people who You know, are expecting a baby in the next four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And their life is notably different. Yeah. Than it would have been. Hospital visit's gonna be a lot different. Yeah. And and what you're going to be allowed to request as healthcare is gonna be different. And Uh, in terms of the small businesses, we know, you know, the pizza place that just opened at the top of our street, they're they closed down way well before the shelter in place thing came down. Well, yeah, Atlanta had tipped well before Georgia did. Yeah, but they didn't even have the shelter in place yet Mm -hmm. there. But they were still, you know, limiting contact and doing a lot of other stuff. But beer place is still open. I've been up there a couple times in the last week. They're still selling growlers and uh, four packs. So (laughs) it's it's fascinating. I I drove up and down um, Cheshire Bridge the other day in Atlanta and saw... The number of things that are open and possibly considered essential businesses that you just would not expect. Mental health is important in these trying times. And gentlemen's clubs are apparently part of that. <laughs> well, a lot of the ones on Cheshire Bridge have the, you know, something between you and the person, so. 
oh, it's a glass yeah, sort yeah. of situation. There's, there's yeah. some peekaboo, whatever. I don't know what they're called. No, I had no idea. <laughs> I was surprised at the at the parking lots that were full. <laughs> they're not all that way, so sure. <clears throat> I don't. I don't know what we're gonna see as far as the fallout from small businesses, and I'm a little concerned in terms of watching people take subsidized mortgages mm-hmm. in the 2000s and watching people take subsidized student loans in the 2010s. And I'm concerned about what it means for small businesses either to go under or to take, you know, loans that require them to jump through a lot of hoops and are basically structured like mortgages. Yeah. Where they'll owe these for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And the terms that can be imposed on them and changed in that time are really well beyond their control. Yeah. I don't, I can't say I haven't put my life savings and every day of my life into building a small business that would be tanked by something like this. I can't say. I wouldn't be tempted by even the appearance of a bailout in that kind of desperation. And I also think people would be, in many cases, better off starting over than signing on to whatever the Small Business Administration loan conditions are going to be. Well, that's, I mean, I sort of think of this as like the, you know, brush fires and things like that in forests. Where, like, it's not necessarily... Not the brush fires of liberty, necessarily. No, 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 no. But, like, you know, you've had this ecosystem that's very cluttered and dirty in a lot of ways and um, extraneous in certain ways and that that the market hasn't quite corrected. And this is a force correction where the fire comes through and there's going to be a lot of really good ideas and a lot of entrepreneurs that this idea didn't work, but there's going to be a lot of new opportunities that come out of this and we may end up in a really good place afterwards. That's the optimist in me, of course. Right. That is but. how it should work. <clears throat> right. Schumpeter's creative destruction and anything right. that fails under stress deserve to fail. And that's how it might be in any kind of actual market conditions. But we don't operate under those. Right. Right. You can't just replace an existing business with three small businesses who do a third of the work better yeah because the larger business has the means to go to the state and say we're too big to fail and the state sadly agrees with them right and and anybody who has the power to lobby for special consideration is going to do that rather than pour their resources into competing and and in many cases right the existing business could outcompete the startup and to the advantage of consumers if they had to focus on their value ads yeah. right, and put their money there, then it would be better for everyone. Right. Because we would learn what parts of their business we can live without. Turns out you could have been doing all takeout all the time and you would have been just fine. Right. Right. They didn't know that up until now. And it might not be true in three weeks. I don't know if it's true today. The takeout that I get from the beer place, they put up a sign that gratuity is helping pay for employees. But I guess, oh, well, I guess they could just not have those employees. I mean, they could. Yeah. Or they can count on customers like you who say, 
oh yeah, I'm willing to support people. Well, no, in everyday times, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't just support randos. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. And they would eventually be forced to either factor that into the price. Right, right, Or right. deal with the fact that most people weren't willing to pay the markup. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And they and we would all sort that out Yeah, on a marginal basis because you would pay 5% more but not 10% more. Mm-hmm. And some employee would accept 5% less pay but not 10% less pay. And then they would go find someplace that valued their skills more. And that's sort of how it's supposed to work. But there are so many major barriers to that kind of free movement. Right. I mean, it, just health insurance, right? People who are in jobs they hate or where they are not appropriately valued or where their skills are not being used, who don't change jobs because they're afraid of losing their health insurance. Yeah. That shouldn't be a thing. That's crazy. Yeah. And that only exists because federal they weren't. Government. Right. The federal government forbid you from offering better wages during the war. And so people started the World War II. Right. And people started offering health okay. insurance as a non-wage compensation that is now a huge percent of the overhead operating costs for anyone trying to employ anyone. Right. And a huge percentage of unrealized wages... For people who don't feel like they can leave the job that isn't a good use of their skills. Right. So it's a good week and a bad week to be a libertarian. Yeah. It's, I think it, we've proven that, that there is such a thing as a libertarian in a pandemic. Sure. And you could even maybe argue there are more libertarians in pandemics than there are in good times because we have learned not to rely on the federal or state government to protect us or provide us with what we expect. Well, selectively. Some people have chosen to learn that lesson and some people maybe never will. Right. And that that's okay too, I think. Yeah. Right? Because we're all entitled to whatever right and wrong opinions we'll be ashamed of three to five years from now. <laughs> that's part of intellectual humility and growing up. That's right. So I'm really glad that we did this episode i know it, it a was a switcheroo yeah it was a little daunting and and it was uh we had to mix things up in order to keep the energy fresh because it, it felt a little plodding and oh are we going to cover more coronavirus news and it's all terrible and ballot access is not getting any better and all of those things are still true yeah and <laughs> it's important for us to focus on other things and and acknowledge how much potential Humanity has and how much of it is unrealized because we're not free to exercise it in the ways that could be most helpful to each other. I genuinely think that people will be helpful to each other whenever they can be, whether that's because they benefit from a functioning society or they gain (laughs) uh, emotional well-being from helping people who can't help themselves or they gain a profit from yeah. providing what people will willingly buy. But oh. we know that they will do, for for one reason or another, they will do it. They will and help they will do it for out. each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It is amazing what people are capable of and <clears throat> what people are willing to do for one another if they don't have the illusion of the omnipotent, omnibenevolent state 
that's supposed to handle all of that for them. Right. When we transfer it onto our own shoulders, we do pretty extraordinary things. Speaking of doing extraordinary things, if you're so inclined this week, you can't tell me you don't have time. Get onto those uh, podcast rating apps. Give this five stars. Say something mean. Say something nice. Say, we forced you to do this at gunpoint. We violated the nap. <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you say as long as you give that five stars. It makes it easier for people to find us and to hear all of the good things that are going on in the Libertarian Party all the other months of the year. If you have any feedback that you want to be a little more private or ideas about different episodes that you might want to hear about, you can email us at podcast at lpgeorgia.com. We'll be looking for interview subjects. Or so, interviewees. If you just want to be on the podcast, let us know. We, yeah. We can do an interview really easily, and uh, especially nowadays everybody's figured out Zoom, right? Yeah. So we Very, can do it. very quickly, everyone has figured out web conference technology. So thanks so much for listening. Thanks for downloading. Share us with a friend. Tune back next week. We will have more interesting things to say that will be less depressing than anything you'll hear on the mainstream news. Hopefully. LPGeorgia.com, y'all. Take care. Bye, y'all. You've been listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. The theme song for this episode was Metaltania by Kevin MacLeod, released to the public domain through FreePD.com. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us and leave a review. You can email the show's producers at podcast at lpgeorgia.com. If you're a libertarian in the state of Georgia, don't forget to find your local affiliate at lpgeorgia.com.